Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with me about all this. Um, I'm imagining that you're going through a stressful time currently. Well, sure, sure, it's stressful because um, my uh, my job is uh, possibly at risk, you know, for uh, heresy, uh, and and it's. Uh, at the bidding of my department colleagues. So it's, it's quite a, it's quite an experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder, maybe you can start by telling me and our audience a little bit about your background. Okay. Uh, I teach media studies, uh, and I've been working in that field for decades. I, I got my PhD in English in the 70s. My field was Shakespeare. And I also taught uh, film, which I studied on my own. But uh, starting in grad school, I became increasingly interested in the media and began writing stuff on my own and in, in, in magazines read by uh, a public, you know, the nation, the Republic, the New York Review of Books. And I became more and more interested in, in media as uh, time went on, and I ended up focusing on that um, entirely. So I, I got to NYU in 1997. Uh, Neil Postman hired me in what was then called um, Media Ecology, Media Ecology Program. And he hired me to be a public intellectual and to do the kind of work I was doing. I, I, I've never been interested in writing for academic audiences uh, publishing in academic journals and addressing academic conferences. Um, much more interested in reaching the public because the media is, is um, a concern um, uh, for anyone who cares about democracy. And as the years went on, it became increasingly obvious that the American media was becoming more and more corrupt, uh, more and more concentrated, uh, I started to focus in the 90s on media concentration. I did a, I edited a series of special issues of the nation in the mid-90s called the National Entertainment State. Uh, these were special issues, each of which had a, had a glossy fold-out chart of ownership. First, we did the TV news. We did book publishing. We did the music business. And I think we did the movie business. So you could see, you know, what transnationals owned uh, the, each of these entities and how, how many properties they each owned, which is a way to demonstrate how much control they were exerting. And it was my hope that, you know, my work would help ignite a kind of national debate on this problem and a move toward antitrust. I seem to have failed <laughs> because the media is um, more concentrated than ever. And that's why, partly why we're in the horrendous fix we're in. Uh, you know, with, with top-down control of the nation's press and, and the arts by multinational corporations that are very close to the government. And mm -hmm. the same is the case with, uh, you know, Google and um, Facebook and Twitter and so on. So anyway, um, I could go on talking about myself. I'll just cut to what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, and well, and I mean, I guess actually, before you get too deeply into that, I mean, I'm interested in the 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 media 
the well, I'm interested in media and media control and media propaganda and how things are changing right now, in particular. And it's I mean, I did a lot of media studies when I was in university. My degree is in um, women's studies. My I did a BA in women's studies and a master's degree in women's studies. But I also did a lot of film studies and a lot of media studies. And and I've always been on the left, so what we were sort of taught to fear and be concerned with in terms of the media and media control and propaganda was, you know, corporate power, which if you're on the left, you always attach to the right. But sort of, you know, within the past few years, I've come to realize that, you know, this media control and propaganda is not just coming from the right, whatever, whatever that is these days, it seems to be (laughs) all sorts of things, but you know, it's the liberal media is a problem, right? The progressive media is a problem too. I would say that the liberal and progressive media are the primary problem now, to tell you the truth. Uh, And this is, this has become more, more evident and more dangerous since uh, Trump uh, entered the white house. Because uh, what's happened is that Trump has become a kind of icon of mendacity, right? Everything he says is a lie, uh, and the media uses that to uh, pat itself on the back and exalt itself as, uh, you know, an oracle of reliable journalism. All right, there's no doubt that Trump lies like a rug, as they say, you know. Uh, Every time he moves his lips, he's lying, except for those few and important times when he actually tells the truth about something, which he does. And then that serves to enable the liberal media to dismiss that too as just another hoax of his, right? Mm -hmm. But while Trump's lies tend to be trivial and obvious, you know, like the size of his inauguration crowd, I mean, big deal, right? That's the kind of thing he lies about. The lies that the media, the liberal media pumps out are huge, consequential lies, uh, like, like Russiagate, you know, which, which was a kind of war propaganda, really. I mean, it, it, it was really all about um, justifying increasingly belligerent uh, measures toward Russia, including um, a really terrifying liberalization of the U.S. nuclear first strike policy, which, thanks to Russiagate, now includes cyber attack as a reason to launch a nuclear first strike. All right, so that is a that is a consequential lie, and it is every bit as as flimsy and um, evidence free as any of Trump's whoppers. You know. Mm. Uh, also, the, the, I mean, we get into the COVID crisis. I mean, the lies that the press pumps out about that are really staggering and, and lethal, dangerous. You know, uh, they celebrate lockdown as the left does now, right? Mm-hmm. Despite its catastrophic impact on the world's poor and working classes. They're all for the lockdown. Why? Because they think Trump's against it. Uh, they, they go after hydroxychloroquine which has a a copiously proven record of clinical success and has been, uh, you know, it's, 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 
efficacy has been uh, reconfirmed in study after study. Trump gets up and touts the drug at one point. Then it becomes an article of faith that it doesn't work. And we hear over and over again that, uh, oh, there's no remedy for this. There's no remedy for this. There's no remedy for this. Well, there actually is a remedy. You know, if, if, if you catch it early enough and take that drug along with zinc and a few other things, the likelihood of you getting over it is, is impressive. Um, this is all meant to clear the pathway for that magical vaccine, which is beyond sketchy. You know, it's, it's really concerning. These are lies uh, that are momentous. Uh, these are, are really, really dangerous lies. And the liberal media is pushing them. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right that it's like what's what's happened is that the hysteria and the hatred of Trump, which is not necessarily unwarranted. I mean, there's really not much to like about him, um, and he's difficult to trust because, like you say, he does he does tell lies. Although this is true of many politicians, but the result is, of course, that people just think anything he says they must be against it's like we hate trump so trump says this ergo i think the opposite of this <laughs> so there's not any there's not any critical thinking around that it's just this knee-jerk response like he's bad so i'm gonna be good so i'm just gonna take whatever position trump isn't taking well that's the obverse of all those people who love him and believe everything he says what's the difference you reflexively believe every word he says, or you reflexively disbelieve every word he says. He's controlling. He's controlling everybody's thinking, you know. And as far as his um, demerits are concerned, I've, I've been struck all along by the press's silence on the worst things that he does. You know, they don't really say anything about his deregulation, which is having a catastrophic effect on the environment and on human health. Mm -hmm. I mean, he makes Reagan's deregulate regulatory program look kind of tame and that was bad enough they don't really say anything about that you know uh they don't really say anything about what he does for wall street and so on they'll scream and yell about what he's going to do with social security but they don't say anything about biden's or obama's stand on social security which is actually the same you know um i you know i've called trump the great uh, I've, I've called him the deodorant in chief you know because he he sanctifies the whole rest of the system so now we all love George W. Bush, you know. Now we love John McCain. Uh, when jo George Bush Sr. died, it was like Abraham Lincoln was dead. And even John Bolton, you know, this guy is a rabid warmonger. He came out against Trump. Everybody loves him, you know. I mean, propaganda, it, this is an important point about it. It, it tends to make us overfocus on one thing. So people will overfocus on Trump. Everything was great until he came along. Uh, it all started to go bad with him. This was a peaceful, equal nation. Everything was going well, and then he became president. Look what's happened. The same with, uh, you know, COVID. I mean, the way some people talk about it, you'd think that nobody ever died before, you know, that it's the only cause of death. So all these other far more lethal diseases that are sweeping the globe, they, they don't matter. And as I say, I can't stress this enough. The, the really lethal, you might say, democidal impact of the lockdowns, it doesn't matter. Not important, you know. The 10,000 children a month dying of malnutrition, 
you know, uh, that comes from researchers at Johns Hopkins. The spike in suicides, which I think even the CDC has mentioned, uh, drug overdoses, domestic violence, medical neglect, despair, you know, these things are off the charts. The people who are obsessed with COVID don't really care about that. They only care about this one virus, right? Same with uh, climate change. People seem to think that climate change is the only threat to the environment. They don't talk about glyphosate. They don't talk about air pollution. They don't talk about water pollution. They don't talk about microplastics in the ocean. They don't talk about, um, you know, uh, low-level radiation. They don't talk about 5G, you know. They're fine with 5G, which is being rolled out now because it's not global warming. You know what I mean? So this kind of, uh, you know, kind of monomaniacal uh, keyhole vision that you get when you focus on the propaganda is, is giving people um, a kind of functional blindness, you know. And on top of that, on top of that, as we've been implicitly saying, uh, it is exquisitely divisive, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we are all now at, at mortal risk because of the machinations of the billionaire class. You know, the great reset, which they're going to roll out, is a, is a billionaire program that's been in the works for decades and it's written up in books. I mean, it's on websites. They're not making any secret of it. It represents a kind of totalitarian threat, the likes of which which we've never seen on the planet before. It's global. And um, yet uh, we're all at each other's throats now, you know, red versus blue, black versus white. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's an old imperial strategy and it's, it's working like a charm and it's working like a charm because of this steady diet of, of propaganda that we're all feeding on all the time. Yeah. The polarization, I don't, I mean, I have to admit, I don't really know enough about this reset or 5g or any of that to address any of that. So, but I do like, I, I am concerned about polarization and the way that like social media and you know corporate forces are are making us ever more divided ever more polarized um they're creating this this like fighting among people over kind of ridiculous things like the things that we fight over and the things that create polarization often seem so blown out of proportion to me. I mean, we'll get into this later, but one example, of course, is is the mask debate around COVID. I mean, you you wouldn't think that people would get so up in arms when talking about whether or not masks are useful or not, essentially. But there's all these issues, like you say, that sort of positions people as either right or left, depending on what they advocate for, depending on who they vote for, of course, too, which um, isn't isn't actually representative necessarily of your politics at all, but is definitely unhelpful in terms of getting at the truth. You know, if it's like, okay, well, you don't support the lockdowns, therefore you're a member of the far right. Therefore, you're my enemy and I hate you and I'm not going to engage in discussion with you and you're a conspiracy theorist and you're a crazy person and you want people to die. I mean, it's it's really nuts how we've gotten to this point and it's really nuts how the media and social media, you know, the social media corporations have 
have encouraged this and created this. And then people who think that they're on the left or think that they're progressive people and think that they're critical thinkers are really going along with it quite uncritically. Well, that's putting it mildly. They, they are. I mean, they're, they, they gulped that Kool-Aid and they completely buy it. I mean, the, the, the ferocity is, is really pretty striking and the, uh, the rationality, you know, I mean, I, I've long since quit trying to have a reasoned argument about, say, face masks with people on Facebook and so on. You can't do it. Uh, people who have been sucking up that propaganda masks work uh, will not listen to any evidence to the contrary. Um, this relates to the you know dilemma I'm in at NYU. You can't, you simply can't discuss it because they just become abusive. Um, as you say, they, they just assume you're trying to kill people, uh, mm. right? And I, I think it has to do with the fear of death. Um, you know, Ernest Becker, this cultural anthropologist, published this classic, uh, The Denial of Death, this book um, in 1973. And his thesis is that, um, you know, live in a culture based on a kind of neurotic denial of death. You're encouraged to believe it can't happen to you, that it's unnatural. You can live forever, you know, if you have the right products and enough money and so on. When you're confronted with the fact of death or the thought of death, he, he noted, it, it makes you cling to your preconceptions and your biases that much more ferociously. Your tribal feelings become more intense. And he, he believes that this has a great deal to do, you know, with the bloodlust of, um, you know, totalitarian systems, you know, the Nazis and so on. And I think we're seeing that here and, and now because COVID has everybody terrorized, unreasonably terrorized, considering the survival rate, which is, you know, north of uh, 99.8%. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not denying that it's dangerous. I mean, I lost a friend to it and almost lost another to it. Mm-hmm. But but the panic, which has been systematically induced uh, through more lies by the liberal media, the idea that increasing cases is cause for alarm. They never talk about the death rate. They talk about the case rate. And all that means is the number of people testing positive, which is actually good news. Because the more people test positive, the vast majority asymptomatic the lower the percentage of fatal cases. So that percentage is actually quite low. It is comparable to that of seasonal flu. I'm not saying that COVID is like a regular flu, but the fatality rate is comparable to the fatality rate of the flu. Well, that, you know, you you can't pick up the New York Times without this hitting it right across the face. And it explains, I mean, you can feel it. You go out in the streets and I'm here in New York City Everybody's skulking around with masks on. The pandemic has long since uh, declined to manageable levels. Uh, and as it has become less threatening, which is, you know, started, the decline started in April, right? 
people have become more terrified and the rules have become more stringent. I mean, I just found out that in, in um, Massachusetts, uh, Governor Baker has uh, imposed a curfew from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., starting, I think, um, the end of the week to go on indefinitely, maybe starting sooner. What is that about? And why are these things happening all over Europe? You know, Belgium, which I think had the highest death rate in the world under lockdown, is going back under lockdown. Mm. France, you know, it's like Vichy 2.0. You know, the other night, I don't know if you saw this, there was aerial footage of it looked like millions of Parisians fleeing the city before this uh, lockdown by Macron, right? Uh, it's happening in, in Ireland and in, in England, um, in Slovakia, Greece. It's it's really something, uh, and it, it is not. It has nothing to do with the public health, you know. I think it's the the fear of death that is driving it, just as it, it's driving people to become more uh, tribal and irrational and less inclined to listen to reason at a moment when what we need above all is to have rational conversations about these things. Yeah. It's really, it's really odd to me. And, um, you know, very early on I did, I did support the lockdowns because I didn't understand that this would become a long-term thing. And because the defense of the lockdowns was we don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. Also, we didn't understand COVID, you know, we didn't understand how it spread as well. So I just thought, sure, if this is going to like get cases down so we can all go back to normal, fine, like a month, maybe like, you know, that maybe two months tops. And then after that, we'll go back to normal. But then of course that didn't happen. And in BC, where I live in Canada and BC, um, we, you know, there's hardly any deaths at all. There's cases, the cases have been going up, but like you say, everybody's recovering and they're still talking about like, oh, do we need to lock down again? You know, they've, they've done this thing where they've, they, all of the restaurants and bars have to close at 10 PM and it was Halloween this past weekend. So, you know, there's news reports and all these people up in arms because after the bars closed at 10 p.m., of course, a bunch of kids, you know, 20 something, whatever, went out and partied on the street. Like, of course, you know, they get kicked out of the bars. It's Halloween. They want to party. They want to hang out. And the response isn't like, you know, maybe we should just keep the bars open and let people hang out in there. Or the response isn't, oh, that's right. This doesn't really spread very much outdoors. Or, you know, let's be realistic about what people want to do and let people live their lives. These kids aren't dying anyway. And instead, the response on the radio and the CBC is, you know, do we need to lock down again to stop this from happening? And I don't understand what anyone is thinking. Lockdown for what? Like you say, I mean, I don't want to be glib about it because I do think COVID is serious. You know, I don't want COVID. Like, and I do know that there are people whose family members or friends have died, but there are also a billion other things in the world that people are dying from and why there's so much hysteria specifically around this and, and all these strange measures to try to keep people from getting sick who aren't dying from this thing. I just don't understand. I don't know what people are thinking anymore. You know? Well, yeah. 
well, they're not thinking, they're reacting. And, and they're reacting on the basis of an absolutely unquestioning acceptance of official claims. You know, that terror makes people compliant, makes them authoritarian. It's always been this way. I mean, you know, there's a famous uh, account in a book called Nuremberg Diary by Gustav Gilbert. This is an army psychiatrist who dealt with the Nuremberg defendants uh, after the war. And each chapter is about his exchanges with a different one of these uh, Nazis. And uh, in his chapter on Goering, he describes this fascinating exchange he had with a Reichsmarshal who said at one point, you know, it's really a very easy matter uh, to get people to go along with war, which he said nobody wants. You know, what is, why would some poor slob on a farm want to go to war? What does he have to gain? So the people don't want war. They don't want war anywhere. So how do you get them to support it? It's very easy. You just convince them they're under attack. And then anybody who objects, any kind of pacifists or anybody like that, is putting them at risk. And they'll go along with it. Gilbert, in this sort of wide-eyed way, said, well, uh, it's different in the United States because we have a, it's a democratic republic and blah, blah, blah. And Goering wasn't having it. He waved that away. He said, it doesn't matter what kind of government you have. It could be communist, it could be fascist, it could be democratic. You do that, you got your war. It'll work. And he was right. He said, it works the same in any country. That's the line that sticks with me, you know. Mm. And it's working all over now. Only it's not a national enemy that has everybody terrified and angry. It's the virus, which means each other. And this has made people, you know, dangerously credible. I should say credulous. This has made people dangerously credulous. This has made people very, very quick to accept measures that I'm telling you, uh, you don't have to believe me, but I can provide abundant evidence to demonstrate that the measures that are being pushed on people are only likelier to make them sick. Okay, you wear a mask all the time when you're healthy, which has never happened in the history of pandemics. This is completely unprecedented. But whole healthy populations wear masks. That we have children wearing masks, okay? This is, this is only going to make people more susceptible to whatever pathogen is coming down the pike because it weakens your immune system, you know? The lungs are an excretory organ, just like the bladder or the colon. They want your body to expel certain pathogens, bacteria and viruses. You put a mask on, you're rebreathing those. The masks are often uh, contaminated, you know, especially the cloth masks. Those are the most unhealthy. Um, and people are wearing them. Dr. Fauci, whenever he's on camera, he's wearing a cloth mask. Okay. How could he not know that that's unwise? I mean, there was a randomized controlled trial published in, I think, 2015 in the British Medical Journal of cloth mask wearing among healthcare professionals. And they found that they not only didn't prevent any transmission of these, you know, viruses, but that they were actually likely to make you sick. And they advised against wearing them. He's wearing them. So everybody wears them. Or if you hate Trump, you wear them, right? Flu shots. 
huge push to get everybody getting flu shots. I know of, I think, 18 studies which make clear that the flu vaccine actually increases the risk of catching an acute respiratory infection. It doesn't make it less. What's up with that? Why are they doing that? You know? Um, and then on top of this is the stress, the terror that they're pushing on us. Stress is very bad for your immune system, you know? It weakens you. So we have people who are stressed, who are wearing masks everywhere they go, who are getting flu shots. I mean, if you didn't know any better, you would think that far from trying to make people well, they're actually trying to make them sick, you know? And that would be, you know, in, in service to the program of getting people to continue to comply. Because when people are terrified and ill and needy, uh, they, when they're traumatized in that way, they are, they are more obedient and they will accept whatever comes down the pike. Yeah, well, I mean, the other aspect that I've been thinking about a lot is that what all this COVID stuff has done and all the lockdowns is to keep people isolated and to force people online. So we were already way too dependent on social media. We were already spending way too much online. And now... We have to do everything online. We have to do right. school online. We have to do work online. We have to get all our news online. We have to socialize online. We have to date online. Um, so we're all isolated and like getting more and more addicted to these apps and to our feed. Um, you know, the kind of information that we have access to is being controlled by these social media companies, which are, you know, completely have like political biases and political aims and what they're doing as well as, you know, their interest in profit. Um, and I mean, that part really freaks me out and it really freaks me out that people aren't more concerned about that angle. I mean, the, the isolation aspect in and of itself, I think is probably pretty traumatic for some people. And as you say, you know, when you're, a bit traumatized, <laughs> if you're stressed, you're lonely, you're scared, you're being fed all this info. I don't know, maybe you are. I mean, we we almost have no choice but to just trust what the powers that be tell us to do in terms of how to resolve this. Like, don't worry, you can solve this by doing this. Like, we can get out of this if we all just do this. Um, and it's just a very odd... I mean, I don't... I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, and I don't, I mean, it's interesting. It would be interesting and we can't explore this, what it actually means to accuse somebody of a conspiracy theorist. But when you start to see these kinds of things go along, I can understand how people would start delving into conspiracy theory territory. Because to me, I'm sitting here being like, none of this makes any sense. And it seems pretty sinister. <laughs> like, Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I, I want to, you know, endorse what you just said, that, that forcing all of life online is a perfect way to shatter any kind of community and to preempt all protest. You know, people don't recall uh, that in December, right, B.C., before COVID, um, there were protests all over the world and they were organic. They were spontaneous you know, all over South America the yellow vests in France, you know, in Lebanon, Hong Kong, uh, 
the Bernie movement in the U.S., I mean, people were really fed up with income inequality and uh, uh, political corruption and fairness and accuracy in reporting uh, this, uh, you know, progressive media watchdog group uh, said in, in a piece in 2019 that the year would go down in history as the year of protest. Okay, well, that's over now, you know, because you can't even congregate with friends after leaving a bar. Uh, you, you certainly can't protest unless it's a permitted protest like Black Lives Matter. You know, that was permitted. That was cool. Uh, Jamie Dimon was down with that. Jeff Bezos was down with that. The Gases were down with that. All the elites loved Black Lives Matter, right? But if you protested the lockdowns, you were putting everybody at risk. So Life Online is protest-free. Life Online is under surveillance, okay? We're all being watched all the time. We're being tracked. Uh, and it's 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 profoundly joyless. You know, everything that it gives human society and love their sweetness is just gone. You know, it's 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 stomach turning. Now, conspiracy theory. Okay, this is something I've worked on a great deal. Having myself been suddenly tagged as a conspiracy theorist in 2005. When my book on the theft of the 2004 election came out, it's called Fooled Again, major publisher, basic books. And uh, until then, I had been a frequent guest on uh, national public radio. Uh, I had pieces, uh, op-eds in the New York Times. So although I was pretty left and highly critical, I, I still was sort of welcome in those establishment venues, right? This book came out. It's very well... If I, say so myself, it's well-sourced, makes a compelling case. You know, and my, my, my hope and my publisher's hope and expectation were that this would kickstart a necessary national debate of an urgent problem, which is the absolute corruption of the American voting system. So the worst in the developed world, okay? With computerized vote counting and, and domination by private companies, the outcome of our elections usually bears no necessary relation to uh, the will of the electorate, which in a democracy is a problem. All right, the book comes out, it's blacked out by the corporate media and attacked in the left press for which I'd written for years, attacked by people who were friends of mine as conspiracy theory. Suddenly I was a conspiracy theorist. This, this blew my mind. Why, right? This prompted me to investigate the origin of that phrase used in that way. Like I was wondering, when did this become a thing, right? When did, when did we start reading coverage that induces us to say, as you just said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, right? Well, I discovered, as others did independently, that it started in 1967, until 1967, the press used the phrase conspiracy theory occasionally and in no consistent way. Starting in 1967, it's used more and more and more, and it's used always in the same way. It's used to ridicule and, and marginalize any theory uh, having to do with elite crimes against democracy. And it was 1967 because in the spring of that year, the CIA released a memo, uh, sent it to all its station chiefs worldwide. Its memo 
1035-960, instructing them to um, discredit the work of writers who were questioning the Warren Report, which had come out a few years before. The Warren Report, you know, was the Bible of those who believed that JFK was killed by a lone gunman. And uh, the memo lays it out very clearly that you want to attack these conspiracy theorists, which is an epithet that nobody had ever used before, by making one of five possible arguments, and they lay them out. For example, well, if there were a conspiracy, somebody would have talked by now. We hear that today still, you know. It worked. It took, right? It took. And it was used after King's assassination. It was used after after Bobby's assassination. And it has been used more and more and more, you know, around Iran-Contra, around the October surprise in 1980, around 9-11. And now it's used reflexively around COVID, the things we're discussing now. Even when we're dealing with stuff like the Great Reset, which is, as I say, explicitly enunciated in books on the cover of Time magazine. It's not a theory. You know, it's a program and we know who's behind it. You know, we know that it's the World Economic Forum and so on. Um, But this propaganda drive, which I consider one of the most successful, certainly in modern history, has actually changed the way Americans and others think about elite power and executive authority. Now, there's a book called Conspiracy Theory in America by a professor named Lance DeHaven Smith. I'm proud to say I asked Lance to write this book for a series I was editing for the University of Texas Press. So it's still in print. It's not that old. And he goes through the history of that meme. He describes its origins, you know, with the CIA. And he makes the very important point that until, until this happened, Americans were not apologetic about conspiracy theory, so-called. I should say they were not apologetic about suspecting the worst of elites, that the Declaration Mm -hmm. of Independence is a conspiracy theory from beginning to end about King George III. And conspiracy theories throve, you know, in the Jackson era and through the 19th century. And in 1913, um, you know, uh, there was a, a kind of an economic history of the United States uh, by Charles Beard it was a bestseller, and it proposed that you know the United States was basically founded by elites with certain aims in mind, right? Uh, and that drove the construction of the Constitution. Nobody laughed this guy off, but now we feel we have to apologize for absolutely reasonable suspicions. I would even say they're healthy suspicions, because I mean. Why, why should we assume that elites are benign? Why, why should we assume that, you know, manifestly predatory billionaires like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, why should we assume that they have our best interests at heart? Why should we let Gates, you know, dictate health policy? His fortune has doubled since he started his foundation uh, 20 years ago. He's serving his own interests just the way John D. Rockefeller did. I mean, both of them were, you know, uh, found guilty of antitrust violations. Their monopolies were broken up. And both of them started foundations, which helped them buy a golden reputation. 
and also enabled them to, you know, fatten their coffers with tax deductible investments and so on. I mean, Gates is following Rockefeller's playbook. Well, Rockefeller was a was a very very dangerous figure, you know, a real predator whose impact on American society, politics, culture, medicine has been really deleterious. Gates is in his uh, following in his footsteps. But to point that out is conspiracy theory. So so it's a kind of mentally disabling meme, you know, that we've all internalized. Uh, I, I had done that myself, you know, until I became a pariah for my conspiracy theorizing. And then I started thinking about it. I, I want to talk about what's happened to you at NYU. Um, how long have you been teaching there? Since 1997. Since 1997. And, I mean, have you addressed controversial topics in your classes before? Well, I teach propaganda. And and as I tell the students at the beginning, uh, I also teach film courses. I mean, that's just pure pleasure. Teaching propaganda is fun, too, but it's a different kind of fun. Because my view is, well, I mean, the fact is that um, propaganda is only worth studying to the extent that you grapple with it in real time. I mean, there are people who teach it as if it were something the Nazis did, something the Bolsheviks did, and that happened then. We don't do it anymore. But they do it in China. They do it in North Korea, but we don't do it here. But in fact, propaganda, whether we're talking about political or commercial propaganda, just like advertising and marketing, were both Anglo-American inventions. They weren't totalitarian inventions. I mean, Hitler learned a great deal from the British propaganda in World War I. So it's, it's, it's important to grasp that propaganda works best when you don't recognize it as such. And it works best when it tells you what you want to hear. Okay. This means that in order to study it, you have to make a tremendously difficult effort to try to keep your head and look impartially into propaganda drives that you may actually have bought, that you may agree with. What, what the purpose of the course is, is to cultivate a kind of rational and rigorous skepticism where you don't take things on faith. You don't believe them just because everywhere you look and, and listen, you hear them and see them. But you question them, you think about them. And if you're going to do that, you've got to be prepared to move out of your comfort zone. Okay? So since that's the subject I teach and that's the way I teach it, I necessarily grapple with controversial issues, the very ones that are always laughed off as conspiracy theory. Like we do a week on the Kennedy assassination, for example. We do some stuff in the past, but we mainly try to focus on what's happening now. Okay. So this this semester, I made these points. Uh, I also said, as I always say, you know, I'm going to be telling you things based on my research. They're going to shock you and amaze you. But don't I want you not to believe a single word I say, you know, just because I say it. I'm not asking you to believe it. If something strikes you. You are obliged to go do the research yourself and see if I'm right. If I'm wrong, tell me. We'll argue about it. 
So, I mean, what what is a more appropriate topic to address this semester than the COVID crisis? Because, I mean, we're, we're t- I'm forced to teach this thing online, which I hate, right? The students hate it. And they're looking all pasty and sullen and, you know, um, it's alienating. You're not with a bunch of people in a room where you can really engage. You got to press a button to talk. And we're under surveillance, too. All right. So I said, look, look at the circumstances in which we're even meeting. So we're going to have to talk to some extent about this crisis and bear it in mind. For example, I said, this is the first week, talk about masks. I said, everybody's saying that we got to wear them to protect others. The only way we're going to get back to normal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Well, there are these studies, these randomized controlled trials, right? So the most rigorous kind of scientific research, there were eight of them that I knew of, that have all found over the last 15 years, conducted among health professionals, that masks don't prevent transmission respiratory viruses. They don't because the viruses are too small and the masks are too porous. That's what that body of evidence says. I suggest you read that. I also suggest that you read more recent studies finding otherwise. But what you want to do with such studies is find scientific reviews of them, see what scientists say about them, because you know students are laypersons, as I am. And you also want to take note of the university where these studies are done to see if the universities have any partnerships with Big Pharma or take money from the Gates Foundation. Okay, that's what I said the first week. Students were interested. And I I shared the links to those randomized controlled studies. The following week, a student emailed me and said she wanted to join the course. And I said, sure, you know, absolutely. The more the merrier. She joined the course. And um, the first day we were dealing with Edward Bernays' book, Propaganda. It's a classic from 1928. Talked about that. She said something in the class. The next time we met, uh, the subject of masks came up again. So I revisited that for a minute. Okay. And in, in retrospect, I realized she was sitting there glaring at me, okay? So this was on a Thursday, and the following, either Monday or Tuesday, uh, I got a call from my department chair saying, did you, did you tell students that masks don't work? Something like that. I said, no, no. What I did was, you know, I, I recommended that they read these studies. He said, oh, you did? I said, yeah. He said, well, as a student has been tweeting, and she's really angry, and she's tweeting, um, and, and uh, she wants NYU to take steps against you. And now I have to tell the COVID response team, whatever they're called here, uh, that you did do this. This was news to me, right? Then my wife starts hearing from old friends of, of ours who are in the academy saying, well, what happened? Uh, what, what's going on? You know, I think, what, what? And I look at these tweets, right? And this, this woman, this young woman is tweeting. She's livid. She didn't say a word during the discussion. Not a word. She obviously didn't read the studies. And she's tweeting in this, in this, she's in a lather. 
because of what she called my excessive amount of skepticism around health professionals. That was what she said. And that NYU should fire me. She actually said that. NYU should fire me for this. I should be relieved of my duties because I'm putting people at risk. This was insane, right? All right, that was bad enough. But then I noticed that my department chair had tweeted her his thanks and said, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. I couldn't believe my ears or eyes. We as a department, nobody had consulted me. I mean, I, I think I'm the senior member of my department for what that's worth, but I was kept out of that discussion. And my chair is publicly thanking this student for demanding that NYU fire me. Oh, she was also pissed off because she had apparently called the bias hotline demanding they take steps against me. And they said, rightly, we can't fire him because of what he's teaching in his class. This infuriated her too. She tweeted about that. Then she goes to my website, News from Underground, which is markcrispinmiller.com, where I post all this stuff that's been blacked out or distorted. Um, and she puts these things up on, the, on her, in her tweets, right? as self-evidently false and malicious. Like one of the things I tweet, uh, sorry, that I posted there, sent to my list, was a chart of funding for left media. This is from like seven years ago. It's fascinating that all these left outlets like The Nation and Amy Goodman's Democracy Now!, right? Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, they're funded by like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Open Society Institute. I mean, it's really pretty striking. I thought that was worth noting to her. This was, I was like far right for putting this up. This just couldn't be true. Right. So that, that, that was the first day. Right. Um, I called my chair. I said, why did you, why did you tweet that? He said, I said, she was asking that I be fired and you're making it a priority. He said, Oh no, no, I didn't mean that. Um, I just wanted her to feel that she'd been heard. Okay. <laughs> okay. Great. The next day, the dean of my school, so the Steinhardt School at NYU, and the and I, well, actually, he was the co-signer, the primary author of this email, was this doctor who advises NYU on its COVID regulations, which uh, Megan at NYU are draconian. Okay, students who had six people over to dinner at their apartments before the semester started have been suspended. That's the kind of rules that they're they're laying down. It's it's insane. This doctor and my dean email my students in my class without putting me on copy, essentially telling them that I had given them dangerous misinformation and recommending a list of studies they should read and believe from the authoritative CDC. Okay, one problem with that is that the authoritative CDC had endorsed the consensus of the studies that I had recommended the students read until April. Dr. Fauci was on 60 Minutes saying healthy people shouldn't wear masks. They don't work. Okay. So I guess it wasn't authoritative then, but it is now. And this is straight out of Orwell's 1984, right? So the dean uh, intervenes in my class. And then the next day, my chair tells me that it will be better for the department 
if I cancel my propaganda course for the spring and teach two sections of my film course, why, I asked. He said, well, because the film course has very high enrollments and that will be good for the department. Well, the problem with that rationale is that the courses both cap at 24 students. They're the same size and they're both highly enrolled, heavily enrolled and have waitlisted students whom I try to let in. So this was just a move against me. It was, it was, you know, patently obvious. And, and there's a petition that I'll mention here that you know about that um, some friends helped me write, not just about my own plight, but about the necessity of defending academic freedom and free speech for everybody who questions official narratives. And I have to say, Megan, I thought of you when I was writing this because I know what you guys went through in Seattle and what you've gone through generally. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that is just one subject of many that we are not allowed to talk about. So the petition, which is up at change.org is all about that. And I pleased to say over 16,000 people to date have signed it. The signatories include some very eminent academics, Seymour Hirsch, the investigative journalist, um, you know, uh, 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 government whistleblowers from the military and intelligence, um, a, a lot of really impressive people, and then just thousands of regular people all over the world have signed it. So, uh, you know, its ask is that NYU respect my academic freedom and set a good example for other schools, but it's more than that. You know, it, it's really a protest against a kind of creeping censorship that has been worsening and worsening for decades, really since the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, I I was just going to say it really does. I mean, it it is happening everywhere, but it does really seem to have taken hold within academia. And there's this trend of kind of letting students dictate what professors can and should discuss and they seem to have a lot of power like the fact that the response to this this one student complains about this one thing in your course and the department responds and says thank you for bringing the oh thank you (laughs) you know you're you're a prof who's been teaching for for so long there and instead of coming to you directly or you know they could invite the student in to have a meeting if she wants to discuss this but like to publicly thank her for doing this, I think really shows the situation right now. It certainly does. You know, it has to do with the fact that social justice so-called has been weaponized by the, uh, I think by the elites. I mean, I'm prepared to back that up because the CIA back in the sixties was already like supporting Afrocentrist activists as a way to attack the black Panther party, you know, so there's a history of that kind of divisive involvement in, in, in sort of politics. And I think that, um, you know, the BLM we mentioned before is, is, is part of that. That's, a, that's a, a permitted protest, right? That was like the second punch after the lockdowns uh, devastated many independent small businesses. The post-BLM uh, protests slash riots uh, finished off a lot of businesses, and I'm, you know, can tell you from firsthand observation out the window where I live here in the village, that while the cops were beating the crap out of protesters and journalists, 
they seem to be standing down in the face of arson and vandalism. And this happened all over the country, you know. I mean, some kids uh, posted on Twitter their video of a cop car in Boston. Uh, these two cops unloading bricks from the trunk of the car and piling them up on a, a you know, the route from a protest. That's not conspiracy theory. The, the video is up. You can see it with your own eyes. There are agents provocateurs at work in BLM and um, Antifa, and I think in among white supremacists too. This will strike people as conspiracy theory and crazy. If you study how the CIA brought down the government of Iran in 1953, you study this kind of thing, Ukraine in 2014, this is standard operating procedure, right? To create unrest and destabilize systems by orchestrating these clashes. And um, what you're referring to, you know, the, the, the use of student um, zealots to police the speech and teaching of professors is a very effective way of imposing absolute rigid conformity. And, and I want to say, because this is news, you know, that since this thing exploded in late September, as of just this last week, uh, I would say about two-thirds of my department colleagues uh, wrote a letter to the dean demanding that he review my conduct, review my conduct, because I not only had I discouraged my students from wearing masks, which is a lie, I told them pointedly, I am not telling you not to wear masks. This is an intellectual exercise. They said that I did that which was reckless and Trump-like, but that I was also guilty of hate speech, attacking students, and maintaining a classroom that's not safe. And this refers to the issue of transgenderism. Uh, I can tell that whole story. Uh, some of the people who signed that letter had reported me in, in February to the OEO, the Office of uh, uh, equal opportunity for a hate speech for three things I'd posted online. This, this had nothing to do with the classroom. It's a brief essay that I'd sent to my listserv on transgenderism and two facetious Facebook posts, all three of which had to do with transgenderism, that is transgender ideology, not transgender persons. So like you, I am troubled by and have a very sound, rational argument against letting biological males compete in girls' and women's athletics. I think that's a misogynistic stroke. Uh, letting biological males into women's shelters, forcing them into women's shelters against the wishes of the women who live and work there. Same with women's prisons. That's wrong. On feminist grounds, that's wrong. That's not transphobia. I don't have to tell you this. You know this better than anybody. And beyond that, there is the grotesque practice of what they call transgender medicine, which is pushing radical medical intervention in the sexual development of children who aren't of an age of, you know, for informed consent. I'm on the board of something called the Alliance for uh, uh, Health Research Protection. 
which is all about informed consent. This is dreadful, and at the very least, something we should be able to talk about, right? Yeah. We can't. We're not allowed. All right, so I was reported to these university lawyers. I had to go for an hour and answer questions about my behavior, my conduct, and these lawyers could tell within 10 minutes that I'm not transphobic at all. This is not about that. I have a critique, which I was expressing online, right, to my own listserv and among my own Facebook friends. And for this, you know, I was uh, uh, guilty of hate speech. All right. I was exonerated. Now it's come up again. My colleagues have brought it up again as if I didn't go through this already. It cost me six grand to hire a law firm to advise me. I'm still trying to pay it off. And uh, now the dean has been ordered to uh, review my conduct again. I can say without fear of contradiction, that the claim that I attack students, that my classroom is unsafe, you know, that I engage in hate speech is a delusion, right? It's a hallucination. I mean, my students are extremely pleased by the experience they have with me. I have scores of emails to prove that. My student evaluations prove it. My courses are popular. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm telling you that this is psychotic, okay? This is crazy. And that's that letter has forced my dean to comply. I talked to him today. And uh, he's, they're doing a review. They're going to review my conduct. And I guess that means uh, question students about what I've taught, you know, which is feeling kind of East German, if you know what I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's that's where we are. And why, I mean, why did, I mean, you sent me this letter that, uh, that these faculty members uh, sent to the dean. I mean, why why would they come after you in this way? I don't understand what their motives would be for trying to get rid of you with all these accusations? Well, there are several answers to that question. Um, You know, one of them is that there's a political thing at work here. Since I was hired, the department has become less and less concerned with media studies and more and more sort of social justice, vague, inchoate, all kinds of stuff. So it's now called the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication, which is like everything. And it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And it deals with all kinds of stuff. Um, And it's much more social justice oriented than it used to be, right? And I want to stress that I've always been on the left, you know, as I understand leftism to be, you know, anti-war, trying to curb corporate power, uh, more power to the people, stuff like that. Those quaint ideas, okay? Well, social justice now has got nothing to do with that. It's all about identitarianism and uh, moral purity and censorship and so on, okay? So they they want to get rid of me. They see me as a relic or an impediment. Um, you know, they, they uh, uh, I don't belong. It's a kind of group think, you know? And I think... To return to an earlier point, it has been intensified by the fear of death because it is no coincidence that these same faculty are completely terrorized. Uh, they all read the New York Times, you know, which is like the fear daily. I mean, that's what it is. And they listen to NPR and they watch MSNBC and they hate Trump. 
So if you were concerned about freedom and rights, you're a Nazi. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But that's that's the way they think. And they're all masked, you know. And um, so I think that there's a kind of deep aversion to what I do, kind of animus against it. Also the fact that I do actually genuinely deal with uh, political issues of moment. And, um, you know, they consider themselves very radical. I mean, here's an interesting irony. Uh, last week, a Palestinian activist named Lila Khaled was supposed to do a Zoom presentation. And Zoom censored the presentation, I guess under Zionist pressure. That was, that was awful. I joined the protest of that, okay? I've also, you know, I, I edited a series of ebooks called The Forbidden Bookshelf, whose purpose is to put back into print important works that, that have slipped out of print. Many of them were killed at birth or were born unknown. And one of the things I'm proudest of is the republication of an anti-Zionist classic called um, The Decadence of Judaism in Our Time by Moish Menuhin, who was Yehudi Menuhin, you know, the violinist's uh, father. And he published it in 1965. He couldn't barely get it published. Um, the Institute for Palestine Studies published it. Now it's available with a new introduction by an Israeli philosopher. Very proud of that. What I'm trying to say is I'm completely down with that issue. Zionism is another one of those third rail issues we're not allowed to talk about because it makes us anti-Semites, right? So I'm, I'm sympathetic. But I st I'm struck by the irony of the fact that the same people who want me fired for teaching the scientific studies about masking uh, and for speaking heresy about transgenderism are all hot and bothered about Lila Khaled and, you know, circulating petitions and screaming and yelling. Okay. That shows that they don't believe in academic freedom. They believe in academic freedom for people they agree with, which means they don't believe in it. Right. Um, I mean, I'm so, I'm so, you know, confused by what passes as the left nowadays. Like it's, you know, the new, new left that doesn't seem to have any connection with, you know, leftist ideals of yesteryear. And, um, has become so unradical and so supportive of, you know, corporate power, obviously, and, you know, <laughs> like dictatorships, like preventing people from like engaging in critical and independent thought. I mean, even if you look at like, if you just used your brain for half a second and thought, hmm, I wonder why all these corporations and governments are supportive of the Black Lives Matter protests. I wonder if these protests are a major threat to the system um, when they're they're supported <laughs> by right. all mainstream media, the vast majority of politicians, you know, even in, in Vancouver, um, you know, local local lefty politicians we're all in a huff and making all these hyperbolic statements around the dangers and harms of these, these anti-lockdown protests that there was a couple that happened recently in Vancouver. Um, 
who of course are fully on board with the Black Lives Matter protests in Vancouver that don't even make any sense because Vancouver is not anything like the U.S. when it comes to like the history of race and racism and of police violence um, and in many other various ways. But like, it's like, why do you, if this is so if this is so radical and so dangerous and such a trying to upend the whole system and the powers that be like why is netflix on board like why is google on board why is twitter on board <laughs> like why, why is amazon on board why are you so know, many of the cops on board <laughs> like, no, no, exactly and some of them are, are disguised as protesters you know yeah i mean it, it, Look, defund the police. I know so many progressives who just think that's the greatest idea. I don't know any black people who think so, but they, these old lefties think, yeah, defund the police. They don't seem to understand that that wouldn't have gained traction as a notion if there weren't something worse in the wings. And that would be, on the one hand, globalist police forces. I mean, you've probably seen some of the harrowing videos from Victoria in Australia where cops, you know, choking people in the street for not wearing masks, brutalizing them with a strange kind of impassiveness. You know, these aren't cops all red in the face, sweating and losing their temper. These are these sort of robotic police who are calmly and methodically uh, brutalizing people. It's, It's very chilling. And it turns out, at least according to a, a, a source, a trustworthy source that I read, and I, I've been meaning to reconfirm this, that those weren't actually Australian police. They were cops from something called the Smart Cities Network, which is a global outfit that's uh, funded by uh, George Soros's Open Society Institute, or at least he's the bag man for it. That's what they're going to – they're not going to just, uh, you know – turn the streets into, into, you know, anarchy, right? And there's going to be more AI. There's going to be more surveillance. There's going to be more cameras. And there's going to be more preventive arrests, stuff like that. So all of this, you know, when you see Black Lives Matter protests all over the world, Canada, Ghana, Japan, and you've got the same graphic, the same huge portrait of George Floyd's face. I mean, anyone who's ever done any organizing knows that that takes a tremendous amount of planning and resources. That doesn't just happen organically. You know, this is just like the mask mandates, the rolling crackdowns, the rolling lockdowns all over the world. Uh, it is a, it is a global thing. And uh, for all these people to think that these, these are righteous uh, betrays, an astonishing naivete and crucially a real ignorance of how intelligence agencies have operated worldwide for decades. You know, this is another one of these things that academics don't really study, you know, because it's conspiracy theory. And if you study it, you make yourself disreputable. You know, this kind of addresses the question we've been raising as to why the left is so uh, compliant, and it really has to do, you, you were right to say that it's especially pronounced in academia, and it's because uh, prof- the professional classes have the most to lose if they step off the reservation. It's true mm. of professors, it's true of doctors, uh, it's true of lawyers, 
you know. So most doctors are down with the vaccine regimen, you know, which has become increasingly um, toxic, you know. Dozens of, of vaccines administered, to, many of them to newborns. That wasn't the case when I was a kid, you know. Uh, and many of these vaccines have been proven to be uh, neurotoxic. That's just a scientific fact, but it's one that doctors sort of don't look at. They also get money when they, you know, administer these vaccines. So the professional classes are kind of the problem. And the most educated people, oddly, seem to be the most susceptible to propaganda overall. You know, when I talk to working people, I encounter a lot more skepticism about things like masks. Mm -hmm. People who work for a living and, uh, you know, have something to lose from lockdowns and that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, academics who are hunkered down often in their country homes uh, and scolding everybody who's out there, you know, um, fraternizing. I mean, you should see the way some of my colleagues talk about the students who just want to hang out in the park. You know, they talk about them the way that um, American nativists talked about Slavic immigrants around the turn of the century. They're like these disease ridden hordes, you know. Um, and that they're stupid, right? And people talk about the, the working class people who are angry about all this and skeptical of it, too, is that they're just stupid. And it's you're right. It's like the academics are all fine with this. You know, people who have government jobs are all fine with this. People who are, as you say, in the professional class, like in the middle class, essentially are fine with it. And then it's the the plebes, Right who are too yeah. stupid to know what's good for them or just, you know, self-centered. Um, you know, they they also talk about Trump voters in the same way. Um, these are just a bunch of idiots. Like, this is what happens when we don't educate the population. Like, and they don't realize how condescending that is and how, ant and, like, anti-left that is. You know, that's the left is supposed to be the oppressed rising up, the working class rising up. It's not supposed to be a bunch of elitists speaking on behalf of the oppressed as they've decided who those oppressed groups are and what those oppressed groups should think and what we should do for those oppressed groups and what they believe, despite the fact that those oppressed groups may not actually believe those things. No, that, that's so true. I mean, I've, I, that's one aspect of, of this bizarre sort of retrogression by the so-called left, which over the last four years has come more and more to resemble the far right of the 50s. Mm. The hatred of Russia and Putin is a throwback to the anti-Soviet hysteria, you know, uh, whipped up by Joe McCarthy. And the left hates the working class. I mean, they fetishize race. So people of color, they love them because they, they, they're like accessories that they wear to show how virtuous they are. You know? So there's a kind of narcissistic investment in people of color. Uh, but the working class, the white working class, they really detest. They have contempt for them. Their idea of doing something progressive and righteous is to expand their own professional ranks to include more people of color. So they, they grow their own sector of the professional bourgeoisie, right? Mm -hmm. They hate the working class. And let's throw in the fact 
that they've turned radically against feminism. Yeah. With this, with this um, obsessive overemphasis on transgender persons, you know, who have their cross to bear. I don't deny that. But why are their feelings, especially the feelings of preoperative transgender people, just say, I identify, I'm a woman, I, because I, I say I'm one. Why are their feelings somehow more valid and important than the feelings of countless women? You know, that's profoundly misogynistic. So misogyny, uh, Russophobia, hatred of the working class. I mean, this is the left, you know? Right. I mean, I did, a, I did an Instagram conversation with Bobby Kennedy Jr. a couple of weeks ago, and we both agreed. We, we just don't, we don't recognize what calls itself the left as the left. It's not, it's some alien thing, you know? It's uh, definitely uh, a problem to some extent. Yeah, well, and for some reason, the left, or sorry, for some reason, the working class and the oppressed groups, um, the marginalized people are expected to vote for the Democrats. Why on earth would any working class person vote for the Democrats? No, no, really, really. I mean, I mean I, yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, 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 you know, I have a lot of friends who, who actually believe that Trump is resisting the deep state. And um, so it isn't just on the right that people have that idea. Because he says things that sound like he's against them, you know, says things that, that sound like he's in the way. I don't believe he really is. Um, American politics is, 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 as far as I'm concerned, a huge pro wrestling tournament. And he plays the bad guy and Biden is made to play the good guy. Uh, you know, he can remember to speak a coherent sentence. The whole thing is just a joke. And I think that Trump... Um, will end up if, if he's elected or elected we, we never know who's really winning an election in this country uh i think he will uh, eventually sell out his base and uh accede to the uh, crackdowns and uh the vaccination well he's already you know pushed uh, operation warp speed uh i i don't trust either of them I think it's important to bear in mind the wisdom of Upton Sinclair said like a century ago that the two political parties are two wings on a single bird of prey. Right. And that's, that's the case. Uh, the Democrats are now in some ways to the right of the Republicans, but the Republicans have in their favor, in my view, leaving Trump out of it is that among them are some earnest and committed libertarians mm. um, who actually believe in freedom. And uh, the vaccine safety movement, which I, I see as potentially revolutionary, because the more people have vaccine-injured children see that with their own eyes, uh, the, the less they're going to buy the, the, the sort of biosecurity paradigm and the medical propaganda and the medical tyranny. And a lot of them are Christians, you know, um, and they're precisely the kind of people that the left detests. They hate them, hate them because they're, you know, often white and um, from flyover states and Christians. So it is an article of faith that these people are just barbarians and goons, you know, 
Mm. But they're not. And it's important to believe in freedom. You know, it's important to believe in personal rights and freedoms. Otherwise, um, you know, we're completely screwed. And the Republicans at least have um, among their number people like that. There are also a lot of racists. There are also some fascistic right-wingers, you know, uh, very pro-war, the neocons and so on. But they're supporting Biden, the neocons. (laughs) But, um, you know, this is a moment, I think you and I agree on this, where one simply has to rethink a lot of, 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 of positions that one used to embrace unthinkingly. And um, it, it has sort of freed me up from certain pieties that I had clung to. Um, I don't know if it's worth the cost, but uh, it has done that. And, and I, I think, you know, I have believed really all my life and more now than ever that if we don't make common cause, right, if we don't forge alliances, uh, we are really, we're dead. Right. And, and that's like, you know, I'm st- I was struck by the fact that in the, you know, um, transgender medicine controversy, the radical feminists have actually joined forces with some Christian evangelicals, you know, differently motivated, but both mindful of the destructive impact of that horrendous kind of medical practice, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's the kind of alliance we, I think we need. Right. Yeah. And I I mean, I agree with you and I feel the same way you do in that I've, I've been rethinking so much and rethinking all these positions that I've held for so long and taken for granted and questioning everything. And it puts me in a position similar to you in that people, when you start to do that, when you start to ask questions and you sort of start to shift out of sides so I'm no longer clearly a leftist in terms of all of my positions. I'm not virtue signaling in the way that you're supposed to, if you're supposed to be a leftist. I'm also not right wing. Um, and when people can't make sense of you in that way, they just, well, they just accuse you of being right wing so that they can vilify you and dismiss you. But, you know, when I said, when I said, you know, why on earth? would the working class vote for the Democrats? It's not because I necessarily think that the working class should vote for Trump, but it's that, you know, if, if the Democrats are not gaining the support of the working class or if they're losing support of women, for example, there's very good reason for that. And the response of the supporters of the Democrats is not to say, well, yeah, no wonder these people don't want to vote for the Democrats and therefore the only other option is Trump. And whether or not he's being honest or not, Trump is saying things that a lot of these groups want to hear. They don't want to hear what Biden's saying. And in many cases, what Biden's saying doesn't make sense or is wrong. You know, I listened to the last presidential debate and I was like, there's, I mean, I'm Canadian, so it doesn't matter. And I was like, there's no way I'd vote for you. You're talking out of your ass. You don't know you're, you're, you're telling us we're just locked down indefinitely. Like if everybody just puts on a mask and we lock down indefinitely, then <laughs> like no grand plan. No, I was like, yeah, no. And then, you know, and beyond that, the Democrats, just as the left and the liberals have in Canada, have taken up this position in favor of gender identity legislation and policy, which screws women and girls over, which trumps women's rights that we've fought for all along. 
And then to be told, if you're a feminist, you have to vote for the Democrats. And to me, I'm like, why? If you were a feminist, why would you vote for this party that says that you don't exist? Your rights don't matter. Your boundaries don't matter. Your spaces don't matter. And you need to put all of your concerns and feelings and fears and rights aside to accommodate this tiny minority of people, of, of males. Yeah, that absolutely. That's absolutely true. Uh, there is no reason to vote for them. Um, they they uh, have adopted a position that's inimical to to uh, women's rights, you know. And let me add, uh, see, this, this is where we have a kind of advantage, at least in argument, which is that we can make the case that our position is actually more left than theirs. Mm. Okay, because if you criticize transgenderism on feminist grounds, you can't be dismissed as a as a kind of you know Christian bigot. Similarly, on on gay rights grounds, transgender medicine is hideous because the thinking is if a kid, a boy, is effeminate, you know, and it looks like he's going to be a gay child, what do you do? Oh, you give him puberty blockers, you start giving him, you know, uh, hormone therapy, you prepare him for surgery. So you mutilate him so that he becomes a kind of simulacrum of a woman. That's profoundly homophobic, which is mm-hmm. why, like, you know, Stonewall Europe kind of split apart over this thing. The kid's gay, let him grow up gay, you know? So that's actually a more left position than theirs, if you see what I mean. Similarly, Black Lives Matter. I mean, how about the fact that the vaccine trials for this COVID vaccine are all being run in South Africa and Brazil on black people? And there were black people protesting in South Africa. They didn't want to be used as guinea pigs. You know, how about the fact that if you're deficient in vitamin D, it makes you much more susceptible to COVID infection. I mean, this has been demonstrated in medical studies. And black people, because of their pigmentation, tend more to be deficient in vitamin D than lighter skinned people. So why aren't the Black Lives Matter people screaming about that? Aren't they demanding that Dr. Fauci talk about that. Why aren't they demanding that the CDC actually move to make vitamin D available for free or a discount to those populations? They don't say anything about it. I mean, they're counting, and, and you know, this gets us into the lockdowns and their inordinately destructive effect on black people, you know? Um, it, yeah. So, so the fact is that if you're actually going to care about women and gay people and people of color, you're going to avoid the democratic agenda like the plague, it seems to me. I I want to get back to what's happening to you at NYU. So you, you met with the dean today and they're going to review your teaching, your conduct, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, what's the process there? What are you... Yeah. I asked him that. It's very vague. You know, I mean, the dean seemed to be kind of a loss. He's doing what he's been told to do and said that they would interview as many people as they could. I said, who? And he said, well, faculty and students. And I said, well, faculty don't know what goes on in my classroom. Um, So maybe students, you know, so Mm -hmm. it looks like they'll be talking to my students. And I will, I will provide them with, uh, you know, um, statements from 
past students uh, in my defense, but it's very vague and it's going to, they hope to be finished by the end of the semester. And then when they've come to their conclusion, they'll decide what to do next. And they claim they'll keep me in the loop, but it's, it's worryingly imprecise and kind of open-ended. And uh, I think it's, I think it's uh, wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not much of an answer, but that's all I know. Yeah. Um, And I mean, why do you think that it is that so many academics have decided that academic freedom isn't important? Well, they think, as I said, they think it is as long as the people uh, enjoying the freedom are the people who think the way they do. (laughs) They don't really know what it is. You know, they don't understand it. They don't know what free speech is. I mean, this is a lot of people, you know. Uh, I mean, I remember when people on the right uh, were very censorious. You know, I wrote two books about Bush Cheney uh, and a book on their theft of the 2004 election. I even did a show at the New York Theater Workshop in the summer of 2004, one man show. Well, there were actually two of us called Patriot Act, which was all about Bush and everything. So, I mean, I... um, I can hardly be accused of of turning a blind eye to uh, the dangers of the right. And I, you know, took my share of abuse from people on the right. But I have to say, I I can't remember anything like the censoriousness that I'm noticing in the left. I think the the left is far more uh, severe and unbending, you know, and ruthless and often vicious. Mm Mm-hmm shut down everybody who disagrees with them. You, you know that all too well. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely. Megan, I sent this to my list when the ACLU wouldn't come to your defense because you were practicing hate speech. I mean, I almost fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe my eyes. The ACLU. This is the outfit that defended the Nazis' right to march in Skokie, Illinois, you know, the Jewish suburb. They didn't like doing it, but they knew that that's what it means to defend free speech. It is for people you don't agree with, you know, barring, uh, you know, outright rabble rousing violence and threats. People have the right to free. That is precious. You can't decide that it's only for your tribe, you know, and that's that's where the left is today. It is it is it is, you know, straight out of Moscow in 1938. You know, it's really um, not a, not a leftism that I would in any way respect or urge anybody to respect. It's it's uh, it's bad news, and and this speaks kind of to the rising influence of China, um, which is a complicated and interesting subject. Because on the one hand, there's a lot of you know warmongering and and saber rattling uh, uh, by the um, neocons in this country and by the military. It's hard to tell, though, where that ends and where a kind of partnership begins, because China has has been the lodestar of the proper COVID response from the beginning, that the World Health Organization immediately hailed China's really draconian approach to uh, crushing the curve in Wuhan and then applauded um, New Zealand for taking a similar approach while vilifying Sweden and never mentioning Nicaragua, by the way. Nicaragua has had an even better record than Sweden without locking down. Uh, They have closed their borders to outsiders. But other than that, there's no masking. 
it's a it's a free country and society's functioning. Belarus is another one. Uh, we're not supposed to say that because their president is like a Trump figure. But you know those places that did not lock down and actually did very well uh, are either ignored or, or or vilified. And I think that China's approach to free speech is um, not a problem for the globalists, you know, that, that they actually want to see the world run like China. They want to see a kind of social credit system uh, set up all over the West. And I think it's being rolled out now. So, um, yeah, these are, these are really strange times, but the, the only way out of them is to do what we're doing, which is to talk freely and uh, honestly and uh, set an example for others to do the same, you know? Uh, so I'm very grateful for your uh, asking me to come on with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. Um, and I, th I think I said in the email, just a, a friend of mine recommended I look you up and told me about what was happening to you. And I was immediately angry. Um, and, and yeah, I'm really grateful that we've connected and, I just, I share your frustrations and fears. I mean, my fears are, are very different than everyone else's fears, it seems. And I think much more serious. And I sort of, you just want to shake people. I know, I know. But, but it's, uh, it, is, it is a waste of energy to try to argue with people who are terrified and whose minds are closed. You just, you talk till you're blue in the face and they just abuse you, you know? Yeah. And you say to them, I had an exchange on Facebook. I shared it with my listserv, which people can join by just going to my website, uh, com. They can sign up and get all these emails, either as a daily digest or one at a time. And I had this exemplary um, back and forth, exemplary in the sense that it was an excellent example of the problem we're talking about. But the more evidence I presented about masking, the more contemptuous and abusive and insulting this guy became and accused me of ignoring the science and the data. Uh, called me names, that I was childish, I was illogical. And uh, I pointed this out to him. I said, if you subtract from what you're saying, the ad hominem insults and the jeering, there's nothing left. And he said, oh, you're just playing the victim. You know, it was, it was like being in an abusive relationship, you know, online. And uh, I've had this experience many times, and I've had it with some very staunch, progressive investigative journalists whose work I'd always respected. But on this subject, they, they have lost their minds. And so you got to talk to people whose minds are open, which means you got to talk to younger people, you know, uh, and, and working people and people who will listen, you know. And and we we listen. We you keep an open mind. You listen. Otherwise, we're we're cooked. You know. Of course. Yeah. Well, um, thank you again for your time. It was it was really great to talk to you. I hope that we get the opportunity to talk again. I definitely want to stay in the loop in terms of the situation um, at NYU, and I'll also post um, links to the petition and your website down below in the, in the show notes on YouTube so that people can support you and follow along also. Um, and yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Megan. Okay. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 
I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. We rely entirely on supporters and donors like you to keep doing this work. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.